0: Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in the space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com. Here's your host, Aviva Fink.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Fink, Vice President of Global Marketing at Altus Group. And today, we have a special episode lined up called the CRE Monthly Market Update. And as its name suggests, it's an episode each month that we dedicate to shedding light on the latest news and movements shaping the landscape of commercial real estate in North America. For this episode, our episode in May, I'm joined by Omar el Tori, U.S. Director of Research at Altus Group, and Peter Norman, Chief Economist at Altus, specializing in the Canadian market. Omar, Peter, we're thrilled to have you here and joining us on today's show. And this past month, like every other month in 2023, hasn't had a shortage of interesting news coming our way, especially as it pertains to commercial real estate. And I'd love to pick your brains. What's really caught your attention? Peter, starting with you.
2: Sure. My first piece that caught my attention this month and has done so for the last handful or so really continues to be the fairly strong pace of employment growth in Canada. And actually, this isn't a trend which is that much different than in the US right now either. Strong pace of employment growth in light of still fairly weak economic growth. I would say in the February, GDP number kind of surprised us a little bit, starting to get a little bit stronger. But a lot of us still have forecasts for even a recessionary environment through much of this year. But I would say with employment running at something like 2.2% or so on a year-over-year basis right now, we're up in Canada about 415,000 net new jobs in the year. It's not going to feel very much like a recession in most households is probably the situation. So I shudder to think about what's happening with productivity underlying this trend. But for now, we have this divergent trend between really underlying economic growth and what's happening in terms on the employment side. So that's the first thing that's kind of caught my attention this month.
1: And Omar, I believe that, as Peter mentioned, the U.S. market hasn't seen something so dissimilar to that. Do you mind shedding some light on that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think the labor market is still an area of focus, along with inflation, and the market's reacting to that data every time there is an update or a new print. And even though inflation is very much showing signs of cooling off, the labor market is still showing persistent strength which it's one of the many variables that Fed and central banks really need to see starting to react and respond before the full change to the monetary tightening direction and policy is realized.
1: Yeah, I guess these things being at odds with each other just keeps everyone guessing, right? Just predictions are in abundance and outcomes are still TBD. Peter, I believe there were a couple of other notable items that you were excited to share with us.
2: Sure. The second big one that we're watching pretty closely just continues to be home sales. You know, home sales now, and we've had the second month in a row where they're starting to come back up again after a bit of a slump, I would say, interest rate related slump over the last six or eight months. But we have seen them start to edge upwards as we came into the spring. So the March numbers were pretty strong. April is good. And the price numbers now are also starting to reverse. That may be good or bad, depending on where you stand from the affordability, sustainability perspective of housing. I think a lot of people would have liked to have seen a little bit more of a market adjustment taking place as we went through the adjustment to try to reset housing prices. But as it stands right now on a month-over-month annualized basis, which I might be the only one who really cares about that number, but it gives me a sense of momentum, we have prices back into the 20%, 30% positive range right now. Now, that's a kind of a made-up number, but nonetheless, it does give an idea about how we've had a fair amount of movement just in the last couple of months. So we'll watch that as we go through the spring market for sure. But this might have been the housing adjustment that really almost satisfies nobody. It was enough of an adjustment to make the bears really worried and it wasn't enough of an adjustment to actually do any real clearing of house.
1: Thank you for that, Peter. And Omar, carrying some of that thematics over to you, something that will affect housing, pricing, and transaction volume and everything else, central banks. Probably a lot to unpack there. I'm gonna hand over the mic to you and would love to get your thoughts.
3: In terms of what's new and what's top of mind, And what's changed recently is that the central banks seem to be moving their last hikes for their policy rates, or at least that's close to last, is really what's expected, given that both the ECB and the Fed both raised by 25 basis points in their last announcement. And I think the market is very much expecting, at least for the Fed, that this is one of the last if not the last hikes before the end of the year and before they either pause or start cutting. But that goes back to that first point of the Fed is very much communicated and still continues to communicate that there are certain metrics and indicators that they rely on and are expecting to see react and move. And they haven't necessarily seen that full reaction yet. So even though they are targeting inflation and inflation and core inflation came, had its first sub 5% print recently, the labor market is still quite tight, and officials have indicated that they are effectively willing to, to sacrifice some economic growth to make sure that they have tamed inflation. So I do think that a lot of the overall optimism that the market had kind of priced in, and it's this weird thinking of they will get a bad economic print, which means the Fed's going to pivot, which means cheap or free money or cheaper money again. I think that narrative, like so many other narratives, is getting worn down. And I think there is a greater kind of shift towards this realization that a pivot or at least a stalling or slowdown in uh, hiking interest rates doesn't necessarily mean a reversal, but actually could very much mean a pause. And a pause, whether it's the upper end of the Fed funds range now is 525, a pause at 525 coming off, that's... 500 basis points higher than what it was just a bit over a year ago. It's still pretty expensive capital, but I would add one last point here that I wouldn't say it's optimistic, but I do think even a pause will be somewhat helpful and beneficial just because it will not be rapid change, which I think that creates stability. Yeah, that's been something that everybody's struggling with.
1: All right, so I guess to summarize both or the points that both of you raised, Peter and Omar, it would be good news, bad news. There's some good, there's some bad. It's not as awful as it could have been, and I guess there's a lot more to watch as things continue to unfold. And maybe with that, I will pivot a little bit because I do have the luxury of having two in-house experts on the call with me or on this podcast with me today, and I would love to do a deep dive into what's happening specifically in retail. It's a space that has faced a long list of challenges over the last several years. And we've got pre-COVID, COVID, COVID, e-commerce, right? There there are so many factors at play. And it would be great to spend the next little while talking to both of you about what's happened and where it's going. Peter, starting with you, do you mind giving us some background on where retail has been and where we are now in your assessment?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll focus a little bit more on that situation in Canada, because it's a real roller coaster right now. And there's a lot of optimism, there's a lot of reason to believe that the retail segment is doing well. But month by month, we deal with a bunch of challenges. I'll just say something kind of going into this, this isn't purely to retail, but it kind of, I guess it falls into that catches your attention kind of detail, but does help to set this up as well, is that one of Canada's remarkable data prints lately, I guess you might say, is population growth. So Canada's population now million. We're just about into the 40 million range. In the last 12 months, Canada grew by over 1 million people, which is our first time in history of hitting that 1 million mark in a year. It's the fastest growing country in the G7. It's outside of Africa. It's one of the fastest growing countries in the world right now. And this has a lot of implications across CRE, of course, and the housing sector as well. But in particular, 1 million people That's five regional malls in some respects, right? And that's what we've had growth in the last year. And so despite that type of backdrop where we are seeing that thing, I mean, the latest retail sales numbers kind of continue to give us a lot of caution as to how things are evolving. I mean, sales were up about 4% in February. But once you adjust for inflation, the real value of sales, so the actual number of pieces of goods going out of the stores, as it were, kind of declined and they declined for the seventh consecutive month. And it's the real sales that really kind of drive the need for the space and what's going on. And the patterns are also pretty sensitive right now as they evolve. Apparel, for example, is running really strong, about 10% up in that environment. It's up about 10%. Healthcare, sporting goods, these things are still doing really, really well, despite the inflationary environment. But all of these things are weighed down by home and garden, which has kind of hit the skids, and furniture and electronics and some other things that you would expect to kind of be a little bit more volatile. You know, in the last several months, when we've had a kind of a housing adjustment, these types of categories tend to also move in in sympathy with that. But it does give us a little bit of pause about these things. And then, in particular, is food and beverage sales. I mean, food and beverage sales are strongly negative now in real term inflation adjusted terms, and part of that is because of the strong inflation. But again, it's indicative of households responding to the inflationary environment, not just by value engineering what they buy, which is what we were expecting them to do, and getting the cheaper products and so on and so forth, but actually buying less food for better or for worse. And again, this is in an environment where we have a million more people and we've got less food going out of the grocery store front doors today than we did a year ago, like less physical items like leaving the grocery store doors than we did a year ago. So I guess we'll see how a lot of that kind of plays out as we get into this more stabilized inflationary environment in the time ahead. But certainly, I look to how those segments as they resettle are going to kind of affect the real estate sector. And so I guess we're watching the evolution of that sector as it goes forward as well. We came through the pandemic with tier one regional malls and food anchored strips doing really, really well and other retail segments kind of falling by the wayside. But now you might start to see a little bit more of that kind of settling out as we see food struggling a little bit we got got apparel coming up, which might start to boost not just the tier one malls, but some of the other pieces. I've got some other things to talk about retail, but maybe I'll send it over to Omar to hear a little bit about his take on things, too. Yeah, you're seeing similar theme of that
3: there is still very much spending in the U.S., and I think that is very much driving the inflation. That goes back to the first conversation that we were having there. But one thing that in the U.S., you're starting to see that the way the consumer is making these purchases is not as sustainable going forward. Even though there has been recent strength, and that once again came through in earnings with four of the nine consumer discretionary industries reporting being profits year over year, which the top ones included hotels, restaurants, and leisure, broadline retail, auto components, and then auto cars itself. And that's all that came out of FactSet, their earnings insight, so, even though there is this continued strength, if you look at how the consumer is actually financing this, right, you're seeing credit card balances across banks go up. But not only that, but then the cost of this credit is also sky high compared to where it was before, and savings are dipping. So, where we are in the consumption cycle, right, is consumers are still very active. That actually is not only supportive of the broader economy, that actually might dampen any sort of recessionary hits or the pain if the consumer does stay strong and it can overall kind of mute the recession hurt, but it also benefits like retail for commercial real estate as well. So I think that that strength is a little bit questionable, right, of whether that will be able to persist just because of the overall financing environment. I'm not sure how much more fuel the consumer does have.
1: And Omar, are you seeing similar trends in the U.S. where there are specific types of retailers that are struggling more at this time than others?
3: Yeah, I'll take the inverse of that, right? Like grocery anchored is still very in demand. And honestly, it's a lot of the same themes that are coming out post-pandemic. Post-pandemic themes are still largely in place. So grocery anchored is leading. You still have a partial return of the experiential retailers coming back and then Sometimes grouping company data into the real estate data is a little bit challenging, but I do think that the resurgence of hotels, restaurants, and leisure, and the strength that those companies have really shown through the earnings season, and they're somewhat optimistic or the hopeful guidance that they will continue to see strength. How that translates into the commercial real estate space is I do think that hospitality is hot but cooling rapidly. If you have restaurant- exposure as well. It depends, but there are definitely signs that at least in the US, that consumers are still very much dining out and spending on that leisure.
1: Yeah. And my understanding is also when it comes to, I guess, not too dissimilar from not to open a can of worms, but let's say office, right, where Trophy is maybe doing well. And as you kind of work down the food chain, it struggles. Same thing is true in terms of consumer goods. Luxury is really strong, but as you move down, maybe the demand isn't quite there or the spending isn't really there. Which brings up interesting questions around certain retailers and also the implications on commercial real estate like Nordstrom, which to be fair, probably has a wider spread of pricing options than, you know, some of the like classic luxury brands, but it's still definitely not a more economic option for people. And yet it's making a lot of headlines and not in a positive way. Peter, do you mind picking that thread up and giving us a little bit more information around what's happening specifically in Canada? when it comes to Nordstrom.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would go stronger than saying just negative headlines. I think Nordstrom is a real thorn in the backs of a lot of our retail clients right now because they didn't have a massive presence in Canada. They had about 13 store, 12 or 13 stores, but half of them were Nordstrom, about half of them were Nordstrom Rack. So that speaks to the range of quality that you were talking about. But generally, tier one malls, and it's certainly the Nordstrom stores, they were in all of the best malls. I mean, the six or seven of them that we had basically was in the a list of malls across the country. And they were large spaces, but large spaces that are soon to need other options coming in, you know. And so what I was saying about how potential re-rise of experiential <laughs> retail and stuff, I mean, maybe shopping center owners are going to be looking at those kinds of options, The sort of good news is, I mean, Canadian shopping centre owners have kind of gone through this a few rounds already with the loss of a couple of department stores over the last 15 years or so. And generally speaking, there's been different kinds of options that come around in order to kind of backfill that space. I mean, sometimes it's been other non-residential uses like office or maybe things like co-working spaces and so on and so forth. Sometimes it's been demising. Sometimes it's been able to bring in something like a Nordstrom or some other type of offshore retailer that's been able to take some of that space. But right now, as far as I see, we a lot of those, it's still an opportunity for trying to see what's going to happen to all that space, but it's going to be a bit of a hiccup in the sector. And at the same time that this is happening, of course, we've had Bed Bath & Beyond closing of stores both here and in the U.S., And that's perhaps a bigger issue. I guess it's a slightly different issue here. I mean, a lot more stores between Bed Bath & Beyond and the Bye Bye Baby stores at something like 60, some 65, 66 stores or something across the country. It's generally not the tier one malls, more the tier two and the community enclosed malls, et cetera. So this is going to be hitting a classification of space, which has been some of which have been sort of struggling through the pandemic in the first place. But at the same time, we're starting to see those spaces already backfilling. There's a like retailer, actually, that's sort of starting up that's going to take a number of those spaces. So basically housewares, so a similar, you know, almost like for like. But I mentioned off the top here that we're seeing strength in apparel and sporting goods and so on and so forth. So some of those types of labels will probably expand or there'll be other options anyway for these regional, also the Bed Bath & Beyond side. But overall, having two fairly major retailers spread across quite a number of assets in a number of markets across the country, exiting in a fairly short period of time continues to be something of transition. It's not exactly the same because, you know, we're not having the rapid transition, but the exit of Lowe's from the market in the home and garden segment, they sold their operations to Rona, which is a major player. They're relabeling some of the stores. I think that there's going to be some rationalization of space, but not in a major way. But that also is going to be playing out. And that's in another segment. That's in the community shopping center and power center type segment. And that's the segment that we're also going to be seeing a little bit of sorting going on as that plays out.
1: You know, it's really interesting because a couple months ago, people would have said coming out of COVID, pricing and the valuation of retail was stable because any kind of corrections that needed to be done had been done with COVID. And now there's this like new potential disruption. And is it a seismic earthquake for the industry? Is it a little aftershock, a little rumble? Omar, what's your perspective in the U.S. where we've also seen several closures, even Nordstrom closing its location in San Francisco? And then there are obviously the larger bankruptcies and unfolding of some of the retailers.
3: Yeah. So I know we were talking about the post-pandemic trends underway, but there's also pre-pandemic trends that are underway that are still I think adding a lot of pressure to retailers and retail owners, right? So essentially going into the pandemic, if you look at overall online sales, that was around 12% of just all consumer consumption was happening via e-commerce, at least in the U.S. And then during the pandemic, of course, that really jumped because places were closed. So that jumped up to around 16.5%. And then as everything started opening, it started falling back down, but was still elevated at around... 14%. But now we're ticking back up in closer to 15%. So I know we're talking like individual percentages, but that speaks to how people are buying. And if you look at the dominance that Amazon still has, it's huge. Even if Amazon is pulling back a number of sites for properties and distribution centers, it still is a huge shift in terms of how people and where people are buying. And I think that that's still very much underway. So that not only pressures retailers, but then on top of that, if you and I don't wanna just keep steering it back, but that's where people are buying when they've already made the decision to buy. But then overall, if there is this perspective that there is risk of a recession and you're starting to see companies actually, the way that they've been able to manage, depending on what sector they're in and how they can pass costs along, They are starting to very much focus, and they've been focused on expense management. And a big portion of that expense management is, I would say, the more focus there is on expense management, there is a greater perception, at least from employees, that there's less kind of like stability. And so there's more concern and a greater emphasis to kind of effectively budget. And so I do think that all of that together of the trends that were already in place effectively being the shift more online. And the current environment being maybe I shouldn't be spending so much right now. I think that is huge implications and ramifications for retail. You can see that definitely through pressure is focused on retail properties. If you look at the March TREP data across the CMBS universe, 11.5% of retail loans are with special servicing, right? So that is a metric of there is some concern here.
1: Right. Thank you. Before we wrap up our episode today we've talked about things that may not be so bright and positive. So maybe we can leave things on a high note. So Omar, why don't you take this one first? Any silver linings you'd like to share as you reflect on the current state of things?
3: Sure. I'll link it also to retail specifically and a little bit of a plug, right? Because for our first quarter Odyssey performance webinar, it showed that retail, even though overall the index was down, I do think that retail the strength of the consumer really did show through. And retail, even though it shouldn't be super exciting that it was a quarter on quarter return of zero, it was non-negative, which I think that that is a silver lining that so far, even if folks have gloomy expectations for the future, the consumer has proven resilient. And that very much is a huge driver for retail going forward. And I think that the best of a bad case, maybe, I think that's a silver lining.
1: Yeah, most definitely. Peter, any positive reflections that you can share with our audience today?
2: Sure. I'm going to share the thing that made me the most happy, I guess, this month in terms of new things. This might seem very localized, but I think that it has implications all over the place in terms of its trend. But the city of Toronto, which of course is quite a large city, is now the first major city, the first large city in all of North America to legalize duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes. Everywhere. So no more single detached exclusionary zoning anywhere in the city. That anywhere that's a single detached neighborhood is now a property is up for redevelopment as of right now there's still a bunch of hoops. (laughs) But nonetheless, (laughs) that zoning component of it that has kept some of those really undense neighborhoods at a time of a housing crisis protected has now gone out the window. So the largest city to now do such a thing. And that may be a trend before. I think this is an important move from a housing affordability perspective, not overnight, but in terms of adding to potential new supply, adding to the type of supply that is highly in demand because people want to be in these neighborhoods. They want to be in a kind of slightly denser format in these neighborhoods, but not be in towers or whatever else. And this is a great move. So that's my silver lining.
1: Yeah, that's big news. And I appreciate you already like seeding topics for a future podcast update on whether it's housing, affordable housing, or just the state of Toronto. So hopefully we'll be able to have you back very soon, Peter, to pick up that conversation in more detail. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today for this conversation. There will be links to all the resources mentioned in today's show within the notes of the podcast. So if you want more information on Altis Group, that will be available, or more specifically, if you want information on the Odyssey call that Omar mentioned where our valuations and Odyssey experts do a deep dive into performance and benchmarking for Odyssey funds. We'll have links to that available as well. Thank you, Omar and Peter, for sharing your insights with us today. And to the audience, thanks again for listening and keep an eye out for the next episode. Have a great one.
2: Thanks very much, everybody. Thank
0: you for listening to the CRE Exchange Podcast, powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.